みなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみなさんおはようございますみ
And during that writing is where we start to see the first board games. But I just wanted to start in the agricultural revolution because one, it literally and figuratively laid the foundations of societies that were able to invent board games. But also I wanted to get the idea that throughout the rest of time that we're going to talk about, culture and morality are going to pop up in games and affect games. Cultures can tell us a lot about games and in turn, games can tell us a lot about the cultures that they came from. And it is on that note that we will start with the board games themselves and we will start in Egypt with a game called Senate. Now, there is a lot of arguing online between historians about what was the first board game. And I am not throwing my hat into the ring here that I'm saying Senate is first because I'm talking about it first. I just think it is the best example of a culture being able to teach us about the games that they played. Let me tell you why. Senate is a game in which the earliest boards date back about 5,000 years ago some of which might have been around the same time that writing was invented, which is pretty incredible to think about, that board games are about as old as writing itself. And it has perplexed historians and Egyptologists in a multitude of ways, one of which is we really don't know how it was played. People have tried, including George Parker of the Parker Brothers himself, but we can't really figure out the rules. What we do know is that it was a racing game of some sorts that had 30 squares on it, in three rows of 10. And we know that it was popular enough that lots of boards were made and the Romans took it later and changed it themselves into a game called tables, which I guess they're as good at naming things as I am. But what we didn't know were the rules. We also had two strange mysteries that didn't really seem to make sense. One of which is the earlier boards that were found were much more plain. They didn't have iconography on them. They were basically just a board with squares on it and some pieces. But later boards had lots more iconography, a lot more hieroglyphs on top of certain spaces, especially at the end. The second mystery is, well, why was that? One theory was that maybe it changed classes. Maybe it started as a game for the lower classes, therefore more plain, and then it became something that was played more by the higher classes, the royalty. And so therefore it was ordained more and had more decorations on it. But then we also saw paintings of important people in cave paintings that were playing the game. And one in particular of Queen Nefertari was strange because she was playing by herself. But why would she, if she could ask slash force anybody to play with her, be playing this game by herself? It was seemingly a racing game, so it would have been more fun to play with other people. A racing game is not very fun playing by yourself. Why? This perplexed Egyptologists and historians for a while until an Egyptologist named Peter Pisione I hope I'm pronouncing that right, came up with a theory that maybe this game of Senate transformed in meaning and went from a game that was purely for entertainment and purely for fun, and it changed into a game of spirituality. Now, let me take a step back and explain just a moment. I'm going to very much overgeneralize this part of Egyptian mythology. I invite you to please, please, please go research it. It is super interesting. But basically, in Egyptian mythology, the belief is that when you die, your soul goes. Now, let me back up a bit and explain a little bit about Egyptian mythology. In Egyptian mythology, it was thought that after you died, there was a journey to the afterlife in which there were trials and passages needing to get through. If your soul was deemed 
unworthy, then you would be annihilated. This is not like hell where you would live forever and be damned. No, this was just you would cease to exist. But if your soul was deemed worthy, you lived a moral life and lived by the Egyptian creed, among other things, then you would get to live eternally with the sun god, Ra. Now, when we take this in mind and we apply it and we think about it and look again at these layer senate boards with all of this iconography, all of these hieroglyphs, then suddenly it starts to make a little bit more sense. At the beginning, the start marker, the place where you would put your piece on, the hieroglyphs could be interpreted to be Thoth, who was the god that announced the presence of the soul. Hello, hello, we have a new soul today. And remember how I said that there were three rows of ten? That middle row? Some of the iconography could be interpreted to be Osiris, who is the judge of souls who would send the guilty to be obliterated in flames. But you could also, along your path to the end of the game, land on Osiris, who would take you to a fiery death, or the house of rejuvenation, where the bodies were prepared for an eternal life. But if you made it to the end of the game, you got to meet Ra Harakti, the god of the rising sun. You made it through the night, you were deemed worthy, and you could meet Ra for an eternal life. Suddenly, this game wasn't just a race. It wasn't just for entertainment. It was your fate. Were you living a good life so far, or did you need to change your ways? And this changed other aspects of the game. The dice were no longer just a thing of random chance. The dice were a tool used by the gods to tell you what was happening. Now, this might seem a little bit crazy to you, my dear listener. And it took me aback as well. But then I remembered that humans are prone to something called apophenia, which is just a fancy term coined in the 50s by a psychologist to actually describe a symptom of schizophrenia. But now we use it a bit more generally. But it's just a fancy word that means that we tend as humans to apply meaning to something that is unrelated. You see, humans as a species have survived really well, better evolutionarily than other species in certain ways, because in part of our ability to recognize patterns. If we are hiking in the mountains and we hear a roar in the distance, our fight and flight instincts kick in. We know roar equals probably danger. We probably cannot defeat a bear, so we need to run away from this place. But sometimes our brains are too good at recognizing patterns, and they try to put patterns where they don't exist, something that is random. For example, growing up, I played baseball. And if you've never met a baseball player, we are some of the most superstitious people you will ever meet. For example, for me, I had a specific long sleeve Under Armour shirt that I would wear, even if it was warm, because it was my lucky one. If I wanted to hit well that day, I had to wear that shirt, of course. Or my dad, when he was watching the American version of football, when his favorite team was about to kick a field goal, he had to turn the TV off. Because somehow it was connected that him turning the TV off meant that they were going to make that field goal. We want to take control of something. We want to feel like we have control. Our brains want to assign meaning to something that might just be random or at least out of our control. Conspiracy theories are another great example of this where they thrive because our brains don't like the fact that just random happenstances could have led to something tragic or something great. And so this is just another example of this. If the afterlife, the prospect of being annihilated or living forever, we might not have that much control over, this game could 
lend its hand to at least giving us a chance to talk to the gods. And so when we take that in mind, when we keep that in mind, Queen Nefertari wasn't playing by herself. She was actually playing against the cruelest opponent of all, fate. Now, Senate wasn't the only ancient game to undergo this somewhat religious transformation. Another game that we found is the Royal Game of Ur. The Royal Game of Ur was named because it was found in the cemetery of Ur in the southern part of Iraq. And it was found by Sir Leonard Woolley. Now this game board, which looked a lot like the game of 20 squares, sat in the British Museum until a guy named Dr. Irving Finkel was able to translate a cuneiform. A cuneiform is a, is a tablet. It's a very old writing system that dates back to a little bit past 3000 BC. But Dr. Finkel was able to decipher this cuneiform and find out that this was in fact the rules to the game of Ur, this game board that had sat since being excavated. And it was figured out that this too was a racing game. But something was interesting about this cuneiform. Not only is this now the world's oldest rule book that we have, but it talks about an advanced variant of the game, which is so interesting because Dr. Finkel theorizes in his video for 2017 International Tabletop Day that this meant that the game was so popular during this time, there was no need to write down the basic rules because everybody already knew it. And this kind of makes sense. Whether I'm in the US and call it tic-tac-toe or the UK and call it knots and crosses, or even if I don't even know the name of it in Japan, if I make that board, if I draw that board on a piece of paper, everybody kind of knows how to play it. Maybe there's a different rule for who gets to go first, but the basic rules are the same. But if I want to play the Minnesota variant, where I'm from in the US, then I might need to write those down because that's a special way of playing and I want to make sure everybody knows how to play with those rules because that's how we play around here. So Dr. Finkel thinks that this lends itself to the support that the game of Ur was in fact extremely popular. So much so that the basic rules were known by pretty much everybody. And this raises a question because why is it that Senate, which had a couple hundred years as a head start to get more popular and spread itself out through trade routes, because we talked about that the agricultural revolution meant that there was a surplus of food, so more trade routes were developed. Why did Senate get changed so much? It was not as popular, whereas the game of Ur was so popular that everybody just kind of knew the rules, knew the basic rules. Why? Well, I really like Quentin Smith's idea. It was half joke, half serious, I think, in his talk titled The History of Board Games in 45 Minutes. That, for one, Senate was just boring, which makes a lot of sense. The game is boring. It would disappear, right? But it doesn't make complete sense 100% by itself. Because we have games that aren't seemingly the best when we look at the mechanics by themselves. A game like Cards Against Humanity or Monopoly or The Game of Life. And yet, they are extremely popular in many countries. And at times, can be pretty fun. So that can't be 100% of it. Maybe it's part of it, but it can't be 100% of it. But here is my theory for you, my dear listeners. Here's my theory. I think it's a mix of that and culture. Because if you think about it, Senate was very specific later on in its life that it was almost like a fortune-telling game of if you were going to be annihilated in the afterlife in Egyptian mythology. But if you don't follow Egyptian mythology, that game really doesn't do a whole lot for you. The changes that the royal game of Ur went into when it went into this spirituality thing actually read more like a weird teenage horoscope that had more things like 
you are going to make a friend today. Well, that's a lot more culturally independent. It didn't matter what culture you're in, making a friend is a cool thing. So I think that it had more to do with the fact that the Royal Game of Ur, whether it was transformed or in its original form, was just more interesting for more people. It hit on more people's culture. So I think that the Royal Game of Ur became so much more popular than Senate and underwent some transformations, but not as many and not into a completely different game like Senate did, because more people could identify with the messages that the Royal Game of Ur was sending, or as Quentin Smith was talking about, the Game of Ur was just a better game. Probably a combination of both. But let's get back to this interesting cuneiform that got deciphered. Because this advanced variant, what it added were things like gambling. And gambling was very, very prominent in ancient games. So much so that we're going to see ancient games starting to get banned in certain places because gambling is becoming such a burden on society or at least seen as immoral in some cultures. Probably the ancient game that had the highest emphasis on gambling was a game called Patoli. So we need to travel to Mesoamerica where the Teotihuacanos are playing a game called Patoli. Now, if you're driving, I don't want you to do this, but if you're not driving and you're able, I want you to close your eyes and envision a game board that looks like a giant plus sign or an X. And if you know the ancient Indian game of Pachisi, you know about what the game board looks like. In America, I think it was sold as Parcheesi. Sorry about that. And there are certain parts on this board that are safe. There are certain parts on this board in which if your opponent hits you, lands on you, then you're sent back to the start. But your goal is to get all the way around the outside and back to the start to get all your pieces around the whole board. So it kind of sounds like sorry, right? What was so extraordinary about this game is that it had a heavy, heavy, heavy emphasis on gambling. In fact, before you started this game, you had to welcome, in fact, before you started this game, you had to welcome Makuil Shochitl, the god of games, which, hey, that is so cool that there was a god of games. But anyway, what you have to do is you would bring treasures or things of value to the game. And then if certain things happened, then you would have to add to the pot. So for example, if you if your opponent got one of their pieces around the board and back home, then you had to add a treasure to the pot. If your opponent knocked you back to the start, then you need to add a treasure to the pot. You get the idea. But there's a couple of interesting rules here. Is that A, if you ever ran out of treasures, then you lose. If you could no longer raise the stakes of the pot. You lost. And this was going to be a lot of treasure that was getting added to the pot throughout the game. But another interesting thing was that these treasures could be pretty much anything. And people would raise the stakes to the point that they would gamble away their homes or their family members. Yes, that's right. People would gamble their children or their family or themselves into servitude as part of raising the stakes of this game. And this game was played for a very long time. It was very popular. And even this game was popular from the BC to the time that the, Sp the Spanish conquistadors came hundreds of years later. This game was very, very popular for over a thousand years. And it was even known that King Montezuma or King Montezuma would actually have a game board outside so he could watch people play this game. But when 
the Spanish conquistadors came, they wrote about this barbaric, this crazy game that the natives were playing, and they outright banned it. So we actually do not know how far back this game goes because of historical records and writing, but we do know that it was definitely played by the Teotihuacanos in 200 to 300 BC. We definitely know it goes back that far, but it might go back even further. But these gambling, the games getting banned was not exclusive to that part of the world. If we go back to Asia, specifically East Asia, we need to go to another famous banned game. If we go to China, we will get to a game called Wei Qi, also known as Baduk in Korean. You probably, my dear listener, know it by its Japanese name, Go. Go is believed to be the longest continuously played game in existence. We play mostly the same kind of Go that they played 2,500 years ago when it was invented. We play basically the same Go game that they played over 2,000 years ago when this game was invented, which is pretty interesting. Now, there are different myths as to how Go was actually invented and the origins of it. One goes that in ancient China 4,000 years ago, the Emperor Yao had a son that was not too bright and not too disciplined. And so Yao invented the game so that he could teach his son how to be more disciplined, how to have more balance. Another story goes that maybe it was just a game used to illustrate troop movements. Maybe it was just like the first war game. Another one goes that maybe it had some shamanistic pieces to it. That maybe it was some kind of ritual. The act of the throwing the ghost stones, the black and white stones that are on the board. And based on where they landed and how they were oriented, it could show astrological signs. But no matter what you believe, but no matter which one's right, we do know that it definitely got very, very popular in China first before we reach the 4th century BC. We definitely know. And we know that because it starts to get banned by some of the philosophical leaders. We're going to get a little bit more into Go's development in future episodes. But we definitely know that it got banned partly because it took away from filial duties. Confucius banned it. Menses banned it. Because they thought it took away from the familial duties that one had. And it would corrupt one's soul. Partly we also know how popular this got and how far it spread because it ends up on the Buddha's banned games list. These were games that the Buddha would never play and told his followers that if you follow me, you should not play these games either. What's ironic about this games list is that its intention was to remove these games from certain circles, but what it actually ended up doing was becoming the world's oldest games list that we have. It resurrected part of these games. We know that some of these games were popular because of this banned games list. Because why would these games be banned if they were not popular? Go was on that list as well as other board and table games. An ironic twist in the story. Now, like I said, we will explore the development of Go, but I wanted to bring it up today because we still play it today. It's the longest continuously played game. And there is reasons for this. A, it's just a good game, for sure. It's just a good game. We play it because it's a good game. We play it because it's a little abstract. There is no cultural dependence on it, like something like Senate. But it also somewhat puts us in touch with our ancestors. A Go board can become an heirloom. You're playing the same game that maybe your parents played, your grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents, all the way back. You're playing the same game with the same rules. And that is important in so many cultures, in so many societies. 
games can help link us to the past when other things can't. And one of the greatest examples of this is in the last game that we're going to talk about today, Mancala. Now, hold on, hold the phone. Wait, 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 wait. Mancala is not a game. If you think it's a game, I do not blame you. I grew up and there was a game in my closet. It, had, it was a blue box and it was titled Mancala. So I thought the game was Mancala, but Mancala is in fact a mechanic, a mechanism. It's a way that the game works. So for example, in Monopoly, two mechanics are auction and roll and move. You roll the dice to move, that's how you move, and you auction things. There are auctions in the game to make money. Those are mechanics. Mancala is just like that. It is a style of game. It is a way that the game works, but there are thousands of different kinds of Mancala games. One big one is Owade. There are thousands of different Mancala games. And another way to think of Mangala is like a deck of playing cards. You don't really call playing cards a game, but you can play other games with it. There are thousands of variants of Mangala games. And what we have found is that we can use Mangala games as historical breadcrumbs, as a historic trail to figure out migration patterns, but not only migration patterns, but unfortunately, slave trade routes. I really like Tristan Donovan's explanation of this in his book, It's All a Game, which I have to thank for this series because it provides the skeletal structure as well as many of the details that are in this series. But he talks about that Owade is the most widespread Mancala game. And this is a capturing Mancala game. But what we've seen with Owade is that it came with the slaves taken from West Africa to the Caribbean, where they made the game board in the soil. And... A similar thing happened in East Africa under the Omani rule in the 17th century. The slaves taken by the Omani from Mozambique to Muscat brought with them a four-rolled Mancala called Njamba that they played in their homelands. In this spread from the slaves to the Omanis, who called it Hawales, and still play it today. And the Omanis also sold slaves to French colonists in the Seychelles, which led to Njamba taking root there under the name Macon. What we find is that where records might not show exactly where people moved, or where people were taken. If there are thousands of variants of this game, what are the odds that two people from across the world, that two tribes play the exact same version of the game? They might call it something different, but they're playing the same game. What Mancala is giving us is a window, is a breadcrumb trail into the past based on the games that people played. And that's something extraordinary to think about. Because what I was talking about earlier, where we started this episode in Senate is that not only can culture teach us something about games, but games might also be able to teach us something about societies and cultures themselves and where they come from. Now that's going to be the final game on today's episode. I didn't get to mention so many good ones. I briefly mentioned Pachisi, the ancient Indian game that might be a subject in the Mahabharata, but that was completely independent of Patoli. If you thought it sounded very similar, historians can agree on that one thing, that they independently were invented in different parts of the world. There was no trade routes or any way for them to exchange those ideas. But another game that starts to pop up around the, this time is backgammon and its ancestors and chess. And that is where we are going to pick up on our next episode. So thank you so much for tuning in today. I have appreciated your time. We also didn't really get to talk about games like Three Men's Morris or The Ancestor of Tic-Tac-Toe, 
which were carved into roofing tiles and also were found outside of gates to towns in which were seen as like a doodle so probably one was fired and we have proof that one of the guards was fired maybe possibly because he was playing these games instead of guarding his post we didn't get to cover that but games i'm excited to talk about next time include those of backgammon and chess but i hope that the games that we did cover today taught you something new taught you something exciting about where board games started and that culture and board games overlap quite a bit to the point that they can teach us something about one another. We are going to start the next episode talking about chess and backgammon and their transformation along the path to something that we still play today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to us. If you enjoyed what you heard, please give us five star on whatever podcast app you're using. It seems to be the only way that the algorithm likes and recommends us, as well as tell your friends and family if you enjoyed this. Until next time, Oshimai. Oh,